Which we're holding in Perek Yudalif. We start seeing, seeing how Nachash, the king of Amman, mounted a campaign against the Jewish people. For no other reason than just to show his, his uh, disdain for the fact that Shaul was a king. And uh, therefore he comes to attack Yavish Gilad, which we said already, people from Binyamin, Shaul's family, relatives, and gives them a very demeaning offer of peace that if he's going to mutilate them and take out their right eye. And when the people of Yavish Gilad say, give us a week to see if anyone's willing to come and help us, so Nachash agrees. In other words, he's so convinced that the Jewish people are, un- are unable to mount a campaign to raise an army, that he's not afraid of the fact that they're going to ask for assistance, that assistance will already come. So he's prepared to wait a week. So what happens? You're holding a Karakadad of Kosuk. Dalit, and the people of Yavish Gilad send messengers to Shal. The messengers come to give us Shal, that's the place where Shal lived. And they told all the people there what, what had happened to them, that they were being threatened by Nachosh, the king of Ammon, and that he had, was only willing to make peace in the terms that he would take out their eyes. So you see how helpless the Jewish people felt that having heard the news, all they could do was cry. It's also indicative that, like we said, that there was a certain prevailing feel of feeling of like disdain for sure, of disrespect, even though he had been appointed the king. That you see, when the messengers come, they don't go first to Shaul, who's the who's the king. That what they should really do is go to him as a king and tell him what's happening, and then you know, afterwards other people will find out. You see, it's exactly the opposite. They come to the place and they tell all the people, and everybody has a reaction. They start to cry. And then only afterwards, in Pasuk Hei, Shaul comes back from the field where he's tending his cattle. And he doesn't know what's going on. Shaul asks, why is everybody crying? And they tell him what happened in Yavish And like we said, it's a, a certain insult. If you have a, such a, something of that importance, you go to the king first. You tell him that's what's happening. And you let, you know, once he has information, he can decide what he wants to do with it. Whereas to tell the whole population what's going on, and then the king only finds out third person, like afterwards, what happens, for sure, it was, uh, it was definitely not the right way, so to speak, to to conduct himself with the king. And we see another point as well. Shaul came back from tending the cattle in the field. Nechara, uh, that's also not something a king is meant to be doing. Like we saw previously, that with that uh, a king has to conduct himself in a way which encourages respect and therefore the halakha is a king isn't allowed to do any activity of work in front of other people because it might make him look less important if they see him being a laborer of whatever, so whatever sort and therefore a king should sit in his throne room if there's nothing else to do and he's not running the country judging the population he should be learning terror like the past success right? but to, to go out and send for cattle it's, it's uh, being a shepherd is not a very uh, looked after job. It was considered something somewhat like a menial laborer, and uh, it's not appropriate for a king. So, like we saw, Shaul himself didn't act the part of a king, and Kaisal didn't respect him like a king, which brought to the general lack of lack of uh, appreciation or lack of cover that should have been for a man. But now, when Shaul hears this information, what's happened to Yavish Gilad? So now things change. A spirit of Hashem rested on Shaul. Uh, what is the spirit? 
so basically, the, we see this idea of the Ruach Elohim, which rested on somebody by the Shaiftim as well, even though they weren't kings. But whether it was Gidon, or whether it was Shimshon, or whether it was other Shaiftim who were entrusted with the job of saving Ka Israel. So they might not have been kings, but they had been appointed as the person in the situation who was going to be used as the one to save Ka Israel. Hashem sends in a certain what we call Ruach Elohim, which means a certain spirit of strength, a certain spirit of confidence, a certain ability to take things in, to take control and act. And whereas everyone else just started to cry and resigned themselves to without knowing what to do. So now the Hakadosh Baruch so to speak, steps in to help Shul, and he gives him the spirit of strength. And now Shul takes the leadership. Kashamish had very much and Shul heard these things. So instead of just uh, feeling broken like everybody else, it, it, it aroused him to the stage that he wants to, he wants to take action. So what does he do? He takes a pair of oxen. Maybe he's coming with the oxen. There's two, his oxen with him. So he takes two oxen. He cuts them into pieces. The messengers that came from Yavish Gilad to share the news. So he cuts ch- ch- chunks of this animal and he gives it to the messengers and he says to them, Name is go go from place to place and give them the message. Anybody who's not willing to follow Shaul, thank you, Shmuel, to battle, I'm going to cut up like slaughter all his livestock, cut them into pieces, and therefore in other words I'm going to enforce that everybody comes to battle. Is that, is that two now, witnesses, one that he mentioned Here we see on the contrary, here we see a man, two things. Number one, uh, Shaul wasn't just given instruction, he was willing to threaten that he was going to carry out his instruction. Now we always say, to, to make a threat which you don't think you can follow up on is uh, an empty threat, doesn't do anything. There must have been a certain sense Shaul felt that I'm going to enforce this. And therefore if I'm going to threaten that I'm going to you know, hack to pieces anybody's cattle, if they don't come to battle, I'm going to do it. Shaul didn't have a standing army at this stage, and Shaul didn't have a police force. So that's the case, how exactly did he want to carry that out? That's part of the Ruach Kvur that Hashem gave him. That sometimes the situation makes the king. And therefore he, he felt that, that I have to take control, and I'm going, this is what's necessary to take control. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to threaten, and I'm going to carry it if I need to. And why does this say Shmuel? Because he knew that not everybody respected him. So he said, really, I'm coming B'Shem Shmuel. If Shmuel appointed me to be a king, then I have the authority of Shmuel to act as well. And that's why he puts his name first. He says, otherwise Shmuel was greater than him, Shmuel was his teacher. And what he meant to say was that uh, I'm, I'm, using, I'm now using my authority as a king based on the, on the, on the position that Shmuel had, that he, he made me into a king, that I'm going to enforce this law. Now that was the first year of the Kodesh Baruch Hu gave Shaul the strength to step into the role, so to speak, and and be willing to take charge. And the second say that there wasn't a normal reason why Kaisha would necessarily be scared of the threat. They knew that Shaul didn't have an army, they knew that Shaul wasn't established as a king. And besides, for any king, if there's going to be a mass mutiny, there's not much the king can do. So to threaten the whole of Kai Israel that anybody who doesn't come to battle and we're going to destroy his cattle, if a few Jews have gotten together, say, yeah, we're all not going to battle, let him try it. We'll, 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 you know, we'll defend ourselves. So they definitely could have done that. Shaul didn't have 
necessarily uh, a way to, like I said, to enforce something had they resisted it. But he was relying on the Siyad Dishmaya, and the Siyad Dishmaya was that everybody accepted it. And that is why wasn't it just a common interest? And that is that like we have to defend each other. So if the people of Yavish Gilad are going to be attacked, so then we should all all get together to fight because we can help each other. And we see throughout the Shaftim that it wasn't like that. Like we saw, we ran Shaftim. Every single time that there was a threat in the Shaftim, it was two or three or maybe four, in rare cases, Shvatim, who were attacked. And then those Shvatim got together to fight. For example, Gidon was from Menashe and he gets the people of Menashe. And if I wanted to join, that was the story. But uh, it wasn't, didn't involve the whole of Israel. And when uh, Barak wanted to go fight Sisra, so he brought together Naftali and uh, Zvulun, and it, wasn't, it didn't involve the whole Israel. And although the part of the lack of the kingship was the fact that Israel was too disjointed to be work, to work together as a force. And like we saw, that was one of the reasons why the, the Zavi keeps telling us in Shreftim that there wasn't a king. There wasn't a king, which means there wasn't a unifying factor to bring everybody together. And that was meant to be Shaul's first challenge. But now that he's a king, his job is going to be to unite Israel on the one banner that they're all going to fight. Isn't that what Israel wanted? Yeah, so Israel wanted, but they didn't. You see, at first they didn't think Shaul was the right man for the job. But now that Lemaisa, uh, there's a certain Zedishmaya, Israel falls into place. Israel step into step into the role, and they all gather together. So now they've all converged um, together from all of all of Eretz Israel to a place called Bezek. Bezek was the meeting place where they're going to you know, line up as an army. In this place called Bezek, Shaul, um, Shaul counts the troops, he like, sets up the army. Uh, the, that's the simple chat. Unfortunately, explain here that Bezek is a place. The Gemara says in Yomar that Bezek means with pieces of pottery. Uh, and the reason was because now there's an answer to count Jewish people. And if Shaul wanted to see how big his army was, he told each person to pick up a shard of pottery or a stone, and then he counted the stones or he counted the pieces of pottery to see how many soldiers he had. Instead of counting by head count, which one can't do for Klai Yisrael. And uh, what they got to is the uh, Bayou B'nai Yisrael, Shlosh Meos Elef, with 300,000 people. Ve'ish Yehuda Shlosh Meos And just the Shavit Yehuda was 30,000. The question is, does that mean as part of the 300,000, 30,000 of them were B'nai Yehuda? Or does it mean besides the 300,000, there were also another 30,000 of Nehuda, and uh, the important difference information is exactly what it meant, what it wanted to say. The obvious question is why we why would Nehuda counted differently? Uh, if you're going to count Klai Yisrael, count Klai Yisrael. Uh, why do we say that there's a certain count for Klai Yisrael and a certain count for Nehuda? Well, the answer is already from the time of the Shaftim, after Yeshua ben Nun died. So the Shaftim master Shem, the Shvatim master Shem, who's going to lead us into battle? And Hashem's answer was Yehuda Yadeh. Yehuda is going to be the first tribe to step forward into battle, and therefore really Yehuda was like the advanced troops. They were the ones to lead the battle, and even now that Shaul wasn't from Yehuda, he was the king, but that was their position in the Jewish war. And therefore he, he has, a, so to speak, a standing army of 300,000, and his first uh, advance force is the 30,000 people from Yehuda. Okay, so now that now the Israel have gathered the forces, Israel are ready to fight. So now they say back to the messengers from Yavish Gerard, now, remember, this must happen pretty quickly, because the people of Yavish only had seven days. So within those seven days, Shaul had managed to mobilize people from all of the Klai Yisrael. 
which is also interesting because we know that the Gemara says that the amount of time it took the journey um, in the time of the first base of English, which was just after this, from one side of Israel to the other was 15 days. And if that's the case, if he managed to pull this force together in seven days, this is one of two things. Either this wasn't the whole of Israel, it was only as far as the people knew about it in that amount of time, or they must have either had Seyadish Maya or traveled day and night to, you know, to reach everybody in such a short amount of time. Why does, it, why does it take seven days to get to the Galil? Galil is the north. By horse, it should take hours. Um, so it goes further. Part of Lebanon was also part of Israel. That's the Gemara's Cheshmer. The Gemara's Cheshmer is going to take two weeks. It could take two weeks to go to the furthest areas of Israel. Something else as well. The Gemara says in more than one place that even though today's Eretz Israel looks quite small, Eretz Israel then was a bigger area. Uh, the Gemara says something which is, uh, to understand this geographically is hard to understand, but the Gemara says it. And then it says, contracted. It says, well, Eretz had three. And the Gemara says, it's just like a deer. If you'd skin a deer, you're never going to get his skin back around him again because it's, it's like enough, there's like a certain elasticity to the skin, it will contract. So the Gemara says, same thing, after the Khurban, uh, it's just contracted. And therefore, his areas are much smaller. The Gemara says to answer a question. Because the Gemara talks about and gets in about the amount of Jews that lived in a certain place. And the Gemara says, I saw that place. There's no way you could fit so many like, matches in that place. Never mind people. And the Gemara's answer is, once the Jews left, it contracted. So there's less place than there was. Now, how I understand that physically, I'm not sure. I don't know if you need to. But that's, that's what the Gemara says. And therefore, the same thing would apply to the size of Eretz Israel. Today, maybe it's smaller because it's, uh, it's, le- it's less inhabited. Whereas we talk about the numbers of Jews who were there in the time of Shalom, we talk about much bigger numbers of people. There must have been more room. Okay. Anyway, so he brings his army together, and now they say to the messengers of the company of Ashkerod, and now that the time is up, it's the seventh day. So they said to the messengers of the company of Ashkerod, go tell the people of Ashkerod, go tell the people of Ashkerod, tomorrow you'll be saved. When? By the time the sun gets hot, that's when you'll be saved. Obviously, it's not what's going to happen. And now they see that Kaisha uh, is coming to the rescue, so they're very happy. What's the time of Chaim HaShemesh? The Gemara says in Brachos, Chaim HaShemesh means the fourth hour of the day. At sunrise, the sun isn't yet hot. The heat of the sun is only felt mid-morning, like what we call the fourth hour. And that's before Chaim Hayyam. Chaim Hayyam, the Gemara says, is when the air is hot, even if you're in the shade. Chamashemish means in the, the direct sun and it's hot, and therefore it's what we say is uh, four hours into the day, it's, the sun is hot, the shade is still cool. So, obviously, Anshi Yavish didn't want to tell that to Nachash, so they say to the king, so they say to the mysteries of the king of Ammon, tomorrow we're going to come and surrender to you, you can do whatever you want. Obviously, he thinks, therefore, that no one's going to think it's going to and uh, they've resigned themselves to their fate, and therefore he's definitely not expected to be attacked. So what happens? Vahimi Macharas, the next day, Vayasim Shal Avsa'am Shleish Rashi. Shal divides the people into three groups. He has 300,000 soldiers, so it's 100,000 each group. And then they're going to come, like, uh, so to speak, in a surrounding motion to come from three different sides, which is what the Torah says. The Torah says, uh, when it says in Satan, it's presented, that when you come to attack an enemy, you can only attack them three sides. You always have to leave an avenue of escape. Which is if they didn't divide the four sides and try and trap them in all directions. They came from three sides. 
So there'd be an avenue for I don't know, for a, a month to run. And what happens? At Ashmar uh, Saboika, which means just before the morning and dawn, still dark, they attack Amon. Obviously, Amon was taken by unawares. And the slaughter of Amon goes on from before dawn until four hours in the day, so we're talking about five or six hours that they destroy the army of Amon. And the survivors by a foot, so they run away spread out. Which means uh, the decimation was so complete. There were no two survivors running together. The, the few survivors that were, were all individuals running in different directions. There, there was no, there was no chance to defend themselves, even to organize a planned withdrawal. And just uh, whoever survived ran for himself, and that's all that was left of the army of, of Amman. Now, the big question here is, was this a mess? Was this a mess? That we don't see the like normally when the Navi is discussing a war which was miraculous, it says Hashem did this or Hashem did that or whatever it was. Here we don't see that that language being used. And the truth is that in military strategy, Shaul definitely had the advantage. Firstly, he had an enormous army, 300,000 soldiers is a lot of people. Uh, number one, number two, he was taking the enemy by surprise because they never expected to be attacked. So he he invaded middle of the night, whatever it was, with uh, an enemy who wasn't prepared for the invasion. So was the, was the war itself a mess, or no? This was, uh, so to speak, within the the norm of what we would expect in a battle. Just to compare, um, when Gidon fought, uh, when Gidon fought the battle, and he attacked them also at night with 300 soldiers. So then it was a mess because Gidon didn't even fight. What happened is that we saw he blew shapers and the then we saw the Midian. The soldiers of Midian got so terrified that they started killing each other in their haste to get away. So the terrorist says that was a nice. He had not, he had very few soldiers, only 300. Uh, he didn't even actually go to he came to fight with shapers with that sword. And Hashem did a miracle, and the the army of Midian killed itself, basically, when the panic ensued. And then it's attributed as a big nest. Similarly, when Barak fought Sisra, also a big nest. When we find uh, other times in the Shaftim that there were battles, it was through Nesim. Whereas over here, the third, the Tapasak doesn't make mention of it as being a particularly big nest. It could have been understood as that's all. You, you, have, this, you have the superiority numbers, the superiority in strategy, the element of surprise. You're going to win. And uh, the Arab even does unfortunately explain that it was Badafka like that. Because this was Kilo part of, thank you. This was part of uh, Hashem, so to speak, showing Klaish on the lesson. That they said, we want a king to rule us. And part of that was, we want the normal mahalach of how a war is going to run. So they said, you don't want to marry a miracle, you're not going to get a miracle. You'll have to run a battle, so to speak, within the way battles normally run. Of course, Akadosh Baruch was involved, of course, Hashem is still uh, directing what happens. But as opposed to that in the time of the Shaftim, where Hashem said, I don't want too many people because I want it to be a bigger nest. Yeah, Hashem didn't try and make it into a nest on the contrary. The, the part of having the king was to have a battle which would be more seem, seem, seeming to be running on the rules of nature, on the rules of how battle runs. Okay. Anyway, so Klaus shall have this victory. And Does it indicate if there's any casualties? It doesn't talk about casualties. It doesn't talk about casualties, but uh, again, it wasn't as clearly a nest as that's on other wars. So now the people said to Shmuel, and obviously the question is, was Shmuel at the battle, or this was a later stage? But Vayama Amr Shmuel said to Shmuel the Navi, 
the one who appointed Shal, they say, Mia Omer Shal, Yimu Those people who originally mocked the fact that Shal would be a king, and therefore we now see that they were wrong. Shal has, has acted as a king, and therefore Tznuha Noshim will miss him. Give those people to us, we just kill them. Why do they have to go to Shmuel for this? Why? One, so there could be two reasons. Number one, they didn't know who the people were. There were those people who said that, uh, said, who's sure we don't accept Shal as a king? But not Dafka, the rest of Kaisal knew exactly who they were. So Shmuel, as you saw, who was the Raya, who could see everything, they went to ask him, tell us who those people were. And you can see who was who. Tell us who those people were, so you can punish them for ridiculing Shal as a king. That was one option. The other option could be, and this is what's mentioned in the Rambam, and that is that to judge a person for being a married by Malchus, really should go to the Sanhedrin. Really should go to the Sanhedrin. And therefore, if Shmuel was still the judge of Kali Yisrael, even if he wasn't the king, I mean, he was the king and he set up, but he was still the judge of Kali Yisrael, and therefore he, they wanted him to give a psak that those people were Chayav Misas, murder Malchus. It's interesting, does the king have to go to the Sanhedrin to, to punish somebody as being a murder of Malchus? This is actually a discussion in the Gemara. There's a discussion in the Gemara. Uh, there's a tzad in the Gemara in Shabbos and Daaf and Hay, I think it is, involved that Rabbi Nasi was talking about the story of David Melech who killed Uriah Achiti for being a murder Malchus, and the Torah blames him that you killed you killed Uriah Achiti, and Rabbi Nasi explains that that David wasn't charged with murder because he considered Uriah to be a murder Malchus. By the time he was, why did he go to Sanhedrin? If you hold him to the murder Malchus and send him to Sanhedrin to judge him, and therefore there's, uh, we see there's such a story in the Gemara even, and that is that to judge somebody as being a murder Malchus. It needs to go to the Sanhedrin. And that's the case, Shashmul, who was, like I said, still the elder shepherd of the time. So they came to him, they came to him to determine that these people should get punished. So, Shaul intervenes. And Shaul says, you heard what the people wanted. And he says, No one's going to get killed today. And therefore, it's a day to celebrate, and you're not going to ruin the celebration by people getting killed. As you he, saw, he's granting a certain degree of, of, of divine intervention. Yeah, for sure. He is, again, we don't, no one's doubting that Hashem brought them the salvation. But because it wasn't an openly miraculous way. Oh. Right. And so now, here Shmuel uh, gets involved, and he, he prevents the people, so to speak, uh, standing up in his honor and killing those who didn't accept him. And like so yesterday, as the Chidah says, and this might have been a tiny on Shal, but even if you didn't feel that you wanted to stand up for your own honor, you shouldn't have prevented the Kali Yisrael standing up for your honor. Which, yeah, it means now. Now that we, everyone is, uh, at this occasion, on this occasion that now people think that Shal's justified himself as a king, and therefore Kali Yisrael wants to punish those people who didn't accept him, Shal... Uh, so now is not the time to punish anybody, and he doesn't want anyone to get to get killed or to get punished as a result of what they did in the past. So, like I said, so there is a side that Shaul is wrong for doing that, uh, and there's a question. The other side would be that being as not everybody accepted Shaul, so then they didn't, they, he didn't have to apply the Dinamarim Malchus yet, because it wasn't unanimous acceptance of Lai Shaul. So, so, so people said to Shmuel who are. Shmuel says, I think we need to, so to speak, re-crown the king. And as he also was realized that the first time around, 
shows coronation and met with a lot of skepticism and a lot of disinterest or disagreement. So he said now that the people in the situation where they're willing to accept Shaul, you know, they now feel that he's uh, proved himself to be a good king or an able king. So we're going to crown him again. So let's go back to Gilgal. Gilgal was the meeting point of Klai Yisrael. And the Chadash HaMamelucha, let's renew the Melucha, which means we can remind Yisrael a second time, um, this time with, uh, with everybody's agreement, everybody's acceptance. And that's what they did. Gilgal. So the entire nation was Gilgal, Shaul Hashem. By Gilgal, now they accept Shaul as the king in front of Hashem. They bring Karbanas and they celebrate. They make a party, they make meals, whatever it is. They celebrate the king. And that, that, was, that was the right way to celebrate a king. And that was to bring Karbanas, to make a yam to out of it, and then everybody it was, uh, is going to rejoice in the fact that they have a king. Now, that's an interesting thing. In other words, even though Shaul had already been a king from before, so it's not like they're making him a king now. Halakhically, he was a king. But the fact that he wasn't accepted means now that we, the Klai Shal tries to accept him, that also has a din of a coronation. Even though technically he's, 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 he's a, you're not doing anything different. But the, the fact that we're accepting him, that, that, that gives us the din of, a, so to speak, the occasion of you know, the, re, the re-acceptance of the king also is an occasion which is something to celebrate. And this is an important point. Because... From this we can learn a life lesson. We can learn a life lesson to what we do in Rosh Hashanah. We do in Rosh Hashanah. Because we know that our job in Rosh Hashanah is to Imam Lecha Kaddish Baruch. Well, we're not giving him a kingship he didn't have already. He's a king anyway. And he always was the king. And if that's the case, what's the value and what's the effect of our being Imam Lecha? And the answer is exactly the same thing as we see by Shal. It's not that Shal became a king now that he wasn't before. But, but now the fact that people willingly accepted him that itself is something which is mechadash the melacha. And that's what we can tell Hashem Rosh Hashanah to. It's not that Hashem is becoming a king. He was a king before that also. Except, what we can add is the fact that we're willing, we're willing to accept him. And we're making a yontif out of that. So in that that renews the kingship. That also has an value. And that's, that's what we do in Rosh Hashanah. We're showing that we're showing that we accepting, happy to accept, we're willing to accept the kingship, and therefore that's what we celebrate. Uh, our, our re-acceptance, our re-acceptance, why, and we, we need it every year. Why do we need to do it every we year? We need it every year because over the course of the year, people tend to drift away from that. You know, if a person is loyal to Hashem 100% the whole year, it's true, it's true. But a lot of people, over the course of time, they become a little less loyal, a little less, less, less uh, uh, focused on listening to Hashem once, and therefore it's necessary to mechazek that again. And to, to renew that uh, acceptance. And that's, uh, that's the Simcha of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Tov as well. Mm-hmm. Just like over here, that is, uh, the fact that uh, the Malchus has been re accepted also is a cause to celebrate.